You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Michael, Andre, this is different. Yeah, we're we're sitting in a dining room that isn't in my kitchen or living room. It's its own. It's its own dining room, and it's got things on the wall that look like your life. I mean, it, it's we've transported a lot of the vibe of the Toronto studio to now the Hamilton studio. Wow. So actually, our studios are now closer. They're within like half an hour or forty minutes of each other. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. Which means now we're looking for a Toronto studio <laughs> <laughs> for when we require one. Yes. So uh, first of all, you wanted to uh, talk about the swear jar. <laughs> okay. So at the beginning of every podcast recording, I, 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 you know, at the start of this year, we decided to actually track our swears instead of just writing the, the check that we do to Brian. And I think we may have shortchanged Brian in the past couple of years, because uh, right now here we are in October, and the tally is at fifty three dollars and fifty five cents. Oh, well, we gave fifty dollars every six months, didn't we? Something like it was fifty dollars once a year. Oh well, there we go. Uh, you are on the tab for seventeen dollars. Hmm, okay, I'm on the tab for thirty six dollars and fifty five cents, and neither one of us has said the c word or the mf. Word, mother, <laughs> that's big bucks, right? That's like ten bucks or something. Uh, it's a dollar fifty. Oh, right. and the c word is two dollars, but it's also just—I mean, it's one of those words where I know it has power, right? You don't say that word unless you unless you really really need to. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I don't think I don't think either one of us would 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 just blurt that one out <laughs> unless, unless we we had an Australian or a British winemaker. Man, I don't even think Derek talks like that. So, no, but I mean, I think some of the younger guys would do it if they could get away with it, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, like, so, I, I remember talking to an Australian, and, and, and he said, you're more likely to call your mate the C word than you would call a mate. Yeah. Okay, because it's, it's, a, it's a term of endearment of some sort. But well, I mean, it's one of the things, so, you, like, you and I have both fallen in love with um, Ted Lasso, yeah, and I mean it's a very uplifting show. It's a very positive show. Um, you know, it's it's like a hug from your TV every week. But I've noticed it's rated eighteen plus. In well, Canada Roy Kent uses it quite a bit because of the language. Because of the language. So let's uh, speaking of Australian winemakers, it turns out that and oh, we nice had him segue. on the podcast. Nice segue. Thank, so thank yeah, we got a couple of things we want to cover in this podcast. The first one is so uh, Jackson Triggs. They have a it's a new winemaker. Yes. Um, we had him on the podcast a couple of times, and now his wines are starting to actually materialize into uh, into our, I don't know, into, into the universe. Before that, he was just finishing wines by the old guy, et cetera, et cetera. But now, you know, this is his stuff. Uh, and this... I was actually really... So, I, I mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, like, like to be perfectly honest, I think when you... When you're wine snobs, like you and I are, I know we kind of eschew that word, but let's face it, when it comes to what we're drinking, you and I are not often setting foot in a wine rack. Uh, no. We're probably not visiting Jackson Triggs as often as we could or should, even though often their Grand Reserve stuff is okay. But it's been a while since I've been excited yeah. to, to see uh, a Jackson Triggs bottle show up in the mail. I am excited about this. So this is a, a Jackson Triggs uh, 2020 White Meritage. And uh, I know that we both got a um, 
uh, a press release about this. And when I got mine, I immediately reached out to Levi, uh, who is the winemaker, and I said to him, uh, how is your 2020 meritage? And his quote was, it's a stunner. That's what he said. Uh, it's, a, it's a Semillon Sauvignon Blanc, and what we have... Um, what we have done here is we've put the wine in. You, might, you may, those who are paying attention, might have heard four glasses being poured. Um, I thought a white wine glass and Andre, who said it's a baby Chardonnay. No, 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 no. I said Chardonnay adjacent. Okay, Chardonnay adjacent. Because I'm glad I, I got you to say the word Chardonnay. Oh, so you better, God. so you better put that in. <laughs> so. Um, because you said it was Chardonnay adjacent. Well, I mean, in just in how I drink it, I think when when I think of Sauvignon Blanc, when it's hit a bit of oak, because I am a sucker for the Mandavi Fumé Blanc, although it's gotten a little expensive at twenty nine bucks. I think at twenty five bucks, it was right where it needed to be. And the fact that we have some wineries in Ontario that are either proudly proclaiming like Hidden Bench or quietly putting some other Sauvignon Blanc in oak, like Featherstone does. I just find it shows better in a burgundy glass than it does in a in a white glass. So, the Sauvignon Blanc does not see oak; it's all stainless steel, and the Semillon is fermented in oak. Uh, just reading through the uh, the the uh, notes I got from Levi here, uh, the Semillon is fermented in oak, and then it rests in neutral oak for you know a limited time, three four months. That's about it. So that's what he says about it, and then he said the rest is up to you guys. So uh, out of the white wine glass, it's it's sharp and focused. the 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 citrus is like freshly squeezed lemon, and and we're doing this cellar temperature. We put it in the freezer, I think, just because it was sitting on your table. We put it and in I'm, the freezer okay for five, five, five to seven minutes. I don't mind these wines a little warmer. So actually, I, I don't mind the. Uh, I don't mind it out of a white wine glass. No, but it, it definitely more Sauvignon Blanc though. Very Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, I actually think even in the in the Burgundy, it's it's showing more Sauvignon Blanc, but um, so it's, now it's softer. It is much softer. Sorry, speaking of Fumé style Sauvignon Blanc, I, I I actually had a chance to taste the Walk the Plank from Crew, the twenty twenty that um, oh yeah? that we had inspired. I still think Ryan Ryan has to send us a couple bottles, and we have to have him back on for that. All right, okay. You, uh, if you think it's uh, worth chatting about. So, I, I think I'm liking the nose a little bit better uh, in the uh, in the burgundy glass. I'm liking the nose, and I find it rounder on the palate. I'm not sure. It's, I mean, you and I, we did this experiment pretty early on in my writing career where I actually had you at the radio station where you showed me how different wine glasses work. And I broke a glass, didn't I? And I promise you, I would edit, I, this is one of my favorite things too, is I promise I would edit out, because you were showing off the... The Schatzwiesel, which is what we're drinking out of still, the titanium-infused glass, it, it, it doesn't break. Ding! Smash! And I was supposed to edit it out, and I forgot. Yes. I think that you had to go back in and get it. I did have to go back in and get it. So, I mean, this is a very fine wine. Um, I, think it, I think it might be a little pricey for what it is. Just going to pull that it? up. I think it's like 30 bucks. Do you know what? Now, you prefer it in the, in the Burgundy, right? Very much so. I think the um, I think the acidity really shows in the burgundy glass. I find the acidity softer and it's more round on the palate. I uh, I somehow uh, I somehow like it out of the uh, of the smaller glass. I, I like I like its focus. 
So interesting, interesting. I mean, as you were doing computer work there. No, I, as, I, as as usual, we're like completely prepared for this, and yeah. I, no, I really, I really like the focus in the uh, in the white wine glass. I I find the uh, burgundy glass is just too broad, and I, I like the broadness about it. I, I mean, there's really is really anything wrong? Anything I, wrong? I don't think. Want? Yeah, see, I don't think there's anything wrong because we did this, also. This is, this is this is literally a personal preference issue. Like if if, if I if I poured this for you and um, you asked for a white wine glass, oh, there we go, twenty five ninety five. Pricing is spot on. That That's makes it cheaper. Good. That makes it cheaper than the Mandavi Fume. It's uh, comparable in style. The thing I like about this style from Niagara and Ontario in general, Lake Erie North Shore, is we hold our asses a little bit better than yes. than Napa Valley. And for also, sure. when you talk about Sauvignon Blanc from Napa, like you're talking like 40, 50 bucks sometimes for some wines that are made in stainless steel. So drink local Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, they yeah. got Levi's name on the release too. Yeah, they do. I saw that. So he's, I, I don't know if this is his first time he's appeared on the release of any wine. So 20% in... Old oak, and that's it. Yeah, which would be the Sauvignon. Drink now or allowed to mature? I would drink this now. Yeah, hundred percent drink now. Um, and I and again, I, I reached out to uh, Levi really quickly before we uh, we did it. I said Burgundy or white wine. He said you could you could put it in the Burgundy. That's what he said. And I said, but if you were serving it, what would you do? And uh, he, I like that he initially said the white wine glass. And then text messaged you an addendum after being like, no, wait, burgundy glass. Yeah, show the burgundy because it'll open faster. Um, so I guess it all depends. Uh, I, I, as I said, I find it a little broad in the, um, uh, in, the, uh, in the burgundy glass. I find it a little more focused in the white wine glass. And I, and I personally like the focus. You seem to like the, the well, broader I find, appeal. I find, I find it focused as well because the acid's still there. Because I find the white wine glass leans more towards tart citrus, like lemon, lime. There's a mineral note that pokes through on that, where in the burgundy glass, I think the semillon properties are more soaring through. It's a little bit more like tangerine, kind of like creamsicle in the back palate, minus the vanilla. Or sorbet. It's like, it's like orange sorbet. So the, the question is, um, he says it's a stunner. Yes. Is it a stunner? Yes, it is a stunner. I think it's really, I really think good. very fair at twenty five ninety five price. And, and I'm going. Uh, I think I have four stars on that. I'm right lined up with you, and I plan on buying buying yeah. a bottle or two. That's that's a nice bottle of wine. So that's the Jackson Triggs twenty twenty White Meritage Grand Reserve. So it's the brown label stuff, and uh, I think he's he's really nailed a nice. And I still don't hesitate to say this: Jackson Triggs needs a facelift on their labels. It is it is a pretty bland, boring label. Even putting Grand Reserve on it, I mean, I know I'm a millennial, and this is it, but there's no millennial curb appeal to this wine. Do you know what's what's inside the bottle with a decent packaging, decent package, would go a long way to helping this fly off the shelf. So we we all probably witnessed that uh, in a skillin is really going back to their roots on their commercials. I don't know if you've seen them. They're I have not. They are going back to the we are we were the first Canadian winery. They are doing this uh, reenactment of Carl Kaiser and oh, Don Zeraldo, if, if, you know, if I going can... to the Concourse Mondial, and I don't think Don Zeraldo or Carl looked e like either of these guys. So I don't know. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty. They're pretty fit. Hey. So I'm like, I don't think this. This is a bad representation of these two men. No, but you need the Hollywood sexy. We need our bottle shock. 
and I know like it's fun for like hardened wine snobs to to also crap on Bottle Shock the movie because it's not historically accurate. I mean, I'm sorry that Hollywood got a few details wrong to make a story sexy, but like if I can pardon my language, but like it's about f-ing time that Inniskillen leaned into their roots because like I think about like the Irie vineyards in Oregon, like one of my favorites, and I mean they make excellent excellent wine but the legacy of that it's plastered all over their website where they tell the story of of jason and david um i feel bad sorry because i keep mixing up who's the father who planted the vines but the fact that it's still family run I, I, but i just i never understood why even though inaskillen is owned by a corporation why they never really leaned into that because and, and on top of that like the, there, there are always always good wines in that portfolio there are at the very least the montague vineyard and, and Pinot Noirs are, are always good. What was that? I'm not, I, I already said the F word. But like, <laughs> it just, it just, it blew, it blew my mind that, that that was not always like really front and center. And frankly, I think Jackson Triggs, um, I imagine there might be some legal complications given the fact that Don Triggs is still involved in the, in the industry and we don't know whose names were sold, blah, 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 even though their names are on it. But like, I don't know why these wineries aren't really just leaning into their, well, I think their foundation. Triggs, and, and so you're kind of, speaking of leaning, you're kind of leaning into what I was thinking about, which was why don't Jackson Triggs do the exact same thing? Totally. Which is maybe get, you know, just ask Alan Jackson and Don Triggs if we can use your face and shove them on the label maybe, like those old Dominus labels. Uh, or the ones that uh, Robert Mondavi used to do. The Opus they, One they, labels too, where they used to have, where they have his like, his likeness. Well, on even the Opus label. One has the the, the silhouette the of the silhouette. face on it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you could do. But I mean, in terms of just the marketing, I don't understand why these these properties who are so important to the foundational history of the winery. It's you know, it it it. As someone who's a marketer now, who works for marketing firm, it hurts my heart to see these brands relegated to the corner of the and, wine rack. And you know they're. They're spending money on signs outside the winery, but yet they can't, you know, the, the sign that really is going to matter, which is the label, which everybody's going to see. Totally. Not everybody gets even, to the winery. I don't even know why Jackson Freaks would need new signs. Like, the building itself is still pretty cool. Yeah. But they got a brand new sign out front that's got JT on it instead of Jackson Triggs, and, you know, they're really leaning, leaning into the JT brand instead of just, you know, Jackson Triggs, kind of like the KFC thing, and... You know, you know, you've got to have letters instead of a whole name. God forbid you should have to say Jackson Triggs. But uh, why they needed a new sign there and not, you know, rebrand their label is is beyond me. So it's just a little... Can I pour you a little more, Andre? I am in full agreement. As you can tell, I did enjoy my first shot of this. I dumped the other half of it. So I guess let's move on to sort of the part two of this, this podcast because this is what the image for the podcast is going to be. In in person tastings are happening again. Correct, and uh, we've been. You've been to a couple. You went to one for uh, Trintadon for La Rose. La Rose, sorry, La Rose. Yeah, and um, I went to one, and I can't even remember what it was for now. I can't even remember. Jeez, like it's just it's all blending one into the. Oh no, it was the Washington tasting, right? And that was a, that was a really weird uh, uh, tasting that How they had. How was that? The, um, I was disappointed to miss that because, I, I, like, as a lot of people know, like, I, I really love Washington and Oregon. Here's what I think is going to, or happened to that Washington wine. I was at the first part of the tasting, and basically what you were doing is you were sitting at a table, you were flagging down a server, and they were going to bring you four wines. 
but it had to be all four wines from the same winery, right? So if you wanted four, you had to try four wines from the same winery. And about halfway through that, because each each thing was an hour and a half, so they did one at, uh, I think one was 10 to 11.30, and then they did one from uh, 12.30 to whatever it was. Everything was an hour and a half, and then they had time to, to clean up everything and sanitize, and then they started all over again. What I started to notice halfway through is that wineries would just come by with their wines. Like a winery representative would come by and he'd say, hey, would you like to try my wine? And you'd like, which winery are you? And they go, uh, I'm Chehalem or I'm, uh, uh, you know, whatever winery. And, and you know, I'm, and, and, and they pour you their wine. And they, and they could talk right then and there about it. And there was 50 some odd wineries there, 54 wow. or something like that. So it, and there was probably 50 to 60 people there. So doing that would have been a lot better than having servers that had to call the winery over anyway to have them talk about it. Yeah, I'm also just thinking about the logistical nightmare of like booking a plane ticket to talk to 50 people where usually it's a walk around tasting and you can get a few hundred people in and out and well 50 at a time. So 60, so you would have seen 180 people and it's a more, but it's a more focused talk, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So instead of the walk around where you know, we've all been to an all walk around tasting and you're you're gabbing and somebody's, you know, drinking beside you and, and elbowing you here and you get an elbow in the head there and you try to spit and you get somebody else's spit in your face. At least you had your own cup, you had your own table. Um, and you got, let's say, a minute, maybe two, as he poured with the winemaker or a winery principal talking to you about the wine. That was, was great. And, and so if Washington... And Oregon were going to go ahead and do it again, and they were going to go with the same format, which I liked. Okay. I really liked the format. I would just have the winery principal come to the tables, and 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 talk, and and that that to me made a lot more sense. I got more out of it, and um, yeah, I got I didn't get as many reviews as I usually do, but I got more. Well, was it a lot uh, of wineries? Was it a lot of wineries looking for representation, or were they all wineries coming to the market? Because I know that's the other thing I like about Oregon is it still feels like Oregon is still very much up and coming in. Ontario. Yeah, there were there were people looking for. There, it was a, it was a good mix of both. Okay, and the other thing that's been a nice trend from the um, from the LCBO. <laughs> How about this? I'm about to say something nice about the LCBO. It's something Hold I haven't on. done in a long Hold time. Hold on, I need a drink for that. Um, the prices of decent Oregon Pinot have been coming down. Where I think even when you and I were still able to go to the tasting lab, it would be $50, $55. And then once in a while, we'd get one at $30. Where it now just seems consistently we got stuff in that $25 to $35 price range where you're not going to get like a a stunner, but you're going to get something that is a a A nice representation of what the grape should taste like, affordable. And frankly, I think it's another thing where Ontario can put a feather in its cap of, you know, places like Chateau des Charmes and Flat Rock delivering entry level. Pinot at a decent price, that our Pinot is on par with what Oregon's producing at the same price. And it, 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 I, rem, I do remember the $20 bottle of Brella that came through. I, that was, uh, <laughs> it's was never going to happen again. No, I, I, got the, no. I got the dirty details. That's Nick Pierce's miraculous find. He told me like it's, it was a few like circumstantial coincidences that happened up all at the same time that he was able to get it into the province for that price. Correct. And, and, and you know what? I remember uh, the, uh, the in a January release, a Best Buy release, that a Napa Valley cab called K-Momi came in at $20. How that ever made it, I am not sure. Somebody's got to have a story about that. But 
uh, that came on me has never been that that cheap again. Uh, but it was it was a really wonderful bottle of Napa Cab that came in. You know what's funny is, is like you asked me what are we talking about today, and we've been talking for twenty minutes, hopefully about some interesting stuff like what we've been up to. But the thing I was actually really excited to talk about because I like it when our content is a little bit more focused. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I I don't know, I think we've had a focused conversation about a few things. So, you know, some gripes about marketing and branding uh, at some of Ontario's oldest wineries. We talked about a couple of tastings. Um, you and I had a chance to be at the same tasting today for uh, Brunello di Montalcino. Yes, and it was the it was Milano Wine Week, uh, which is which was also a very interesting uh, tasting. It's simulcast from uh, Milan, Italy. Uh, all about you know various Italian wines and things like that, and it turns out that they were doing also Chicago, Miami, some in Montreal. Um, the one we were at, the one I was at today was Miami. Yeah, so they did Miami. So Chicago was also involved. Um, there was like four or five cities that they had involved. Um, uh, Montreal got uh, got two tastings. Toronto got six, which is which is pretty interesting. Um, and, uh, and then it's a, it's a week at the beginning of October, uh, happens in Milan and they, they simulcast these. So actually the tastings had to go off at a certain time. So if it was for two 30, you had to be there for two 30 yeah. and, uh, the, the screen lit up and people started talking and you could actually talk to them as well. So it was, it was pretty neat. Um, yeah, I, I, I as I've said many times on this podcast, Italy is a weak point in my wine knowledge. But I'm I'm tackling Italy a lot in the same way that I tackled France, and I like to be pretty thorough. Um, I don't I don't get fixated on any one region, but at the same time, I want to make sure that I've done it justice before I move on. So you know, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Italy with Franciacorta. Uh, I've written a couple of of um, articles. Uh, with the help and and with compensation from Prosecco Superiore Valdobbia Den Dene Den Val Valdobbia Valdobbia. Anyways, Valdobbia. The, the con is on the on the. You side. gotta say it fast. If you say it fast, then people just assume you it's know. What you're right. And and, and uh, then with the um, with the help of my good friend Carrie, who is in love with Tuscan wines, and and because of you and Michael Goodell in our past podcasts, I've really been uh, digging deep into Chianti Classico. Yeah, uh, which I still feel I haven't completely discovered. Yeah, Chianti um, Classico, you've you've got to taste for a number of years before you understand that wine. But the thing I, I like about it is it's just it's it's very approachable and early and and also is ageable. And it um, it throws a lot of flavors at me that I really enjoy. You, you know, you know how I called this Sauvignon Blanc Semillon Chardonnay adjacent. I think the ah balls. <laughs> what people what, what people don't know is that every time he says it, I thumbs up because I know he's not going to remember that because he just gets off on his rant. Um, Chianti Classico, I find Bordeaux adjacent. Like it's got a lot of the red fruit or dark fruit that I love about Bordeaux, but it's just the savory edge to the tannin. You know the mushroom notes, the tomato stem that you don't get from Bordeaux. So, um, my. Actually, I'll, I'll let you do a quick intro on the tasting, but I actually have some uh, comments to make about the the tasting. So this this was called uh, Brunello Le Reserva. I'm not sure why it was Le Reserva, um, but uh, it was about Brunello de Montalcino Reserva, DOCG, presented by the Consorzio Vino, uh, Brunello, Vino Brunello di Montalcino. 
and um, they they presented uh, seven wines, all from the 2015 vintage, which is a very very good vintage. Okay. Uh, I think they they said that. Sixteen is considered like that perfect vintage, but I think fifteen, just like here in Ontario, fifteen takes a backseat to our sixteen because I think we had a great fifteen. They have the same problem. Okay, so what you're doing right now is a bit of the problem I had with the tasting today. And I get it that maybe maybe I should have known more before I walked into the room, but I feel like, uh, and it's a problem I had working at the radio station as well, is that when you're talking about something, you'll skip over the fundamentals when you know the fundamentals so well they're there. Um, you know, I actually had to do a quick Google search about what's in Brunello, because like they didn't even cover that. They sort of just went right into... This is stuff that you're talking about, oh, good vintage, and this is this is how it's made. This is in wood, this and that. But it's just like I, I just I made a list of questions that I wanted to save for the podcast because I know you know about oh, okay. about so about Brunello. So let's, let's let, give him a shot. Let's take it a step back. So, um, I guess first let's just talk about what what grape is Brunello made with? It's a Sangiovese. It's just uh, it's it's a hundred percent Sangiovese. Now, what's the Main difference, and this now this is an Andre question. What's the main difference in the approach between Brunello and Chianti Classico? Because if they're both in, in Tuscany, like why isn't there a larger, just kind of governing body to have all these Sangiovese wines under well, the same rules? Because Brunello is is a different region. First okay. of all, um, in Chianti you can blend in certain grape varieties. Okay, although with in Classico most people don't. They can though. Okay. Like and, and and nothing stops you from from doing it. Whereas Brunello has to be a hundred percent Sangiovese, and then there's the the aging uh, of the wines. It has to. It's it's definitely longer. Which I can find Brunello. fascinating. So yeah. so the one thing that we were told by the, the the moderator is that it takes six years for a wine to be released from the winery, with a minimum of two years in barrel. Is that just for Reserva? Uh, two years, I believe, is for just Brunello, and then three years for Reserva. Okay, so so these wines that we tasted today were all three years in oak of mostly. Mostly, I ages. see some of them were twenty four months, but then they have to sit in bottle, right? So and they... then has to sit in bottle for two years. So the the first question I had that at this point I was just too, I was a little shell shocked, too embarrassed to raise my hand and, and ask. But the wines that we tasted today, many were very approachable. Yes. Very drinkable now, like I could take them home from the LCBO or order from the agent and, and enjoy right now. But is Brunello made as a wine to be consumed now, or is it meant to age? It is meant to age. I, they, they are very ageable. Uh, the, the high acidity that they get, especially from Sangiovese, is very ageable. Um, the grape itself is very ageable. Uh, what, isn't, what wasn't covered in, in this uh, particular... Uh, seminar and and just from going uh to tuscany all those all my, all the years that i've gone and the vertical tastings that i've gone to um during our our tasting today the everybody talked about casks and then they talked about uh, barrels and then they talked about uh, boti and then they talked about uh, tonneau now casks are those very large barrels that you that you see if you ever drive by, say, Lakeview Winery in Niagara Lake. You see those big, huge barrels that they have out front. Okay. A lot of a lot of uh, Tuscan wineries, and, and and this goes not just for Brunello but Vino Nobile. Also, uh, I'm talking about wineries in Umbria and and 
in other parts of, especially in the north of Italy, they're getting away from small barrels because it adds too much oak to the wine. It's a parkerization of the wine. And they're getting into these large oak casks that are Slovenian oak, Slavonian oak and um, is not imparting as much oak flavor. So it allows the grape, which has its own natural tannins, natural acidity, to really shine through. And that's, I think, the important part of what you were starting to see in these 2015s and would then see later in the 16s and 17s and 18s is that oak is not as dominant a characteristic in these wines. And I think that that's, coming back to your question, is what makes them more approachable. I find it fascinating just what's happening with the wine world in, in general, keeping in mind that trends are trends and, and you know, wineries need to follow what the market is, is doing. But like we're seeing a pendulum swing hard the other way from what Robert Parker did and, and the influence that this one critic had on, on this style of winemaking. And I'm just curious if in our lives, in your life, in my life, if we're going to see the pendulum swing the other way, if we're going to have, you know, a Gen Z who are, is, is in high school right now that is going to end up with the immense amount of influence after they've been writing for 10, 15 years to convince all the winers to be like, oh, you know what? We were wrong in the, in the, in the 20, 20 years to, uh, to reduce the use of oak. It's time to go back. Well, all oak all the time. Well, look, I, I, would, I, would, I would like to say no, but witnessing what we are witnessing now with uh, Petnet and uh, uh, skin-fermented whites, these are things they did, they got away from, and now we're coming back to them but because it. people are idiots. Oh, sorry, oh, I said okay, that. Okay, okay. I, th I think I think I think that's a little a little harsh. I, I, but I think it's it's saying that trends trends are trends, and the ones that the market respond to stay or stick around a little longer. Because remember, a couple of years ago, we had blue wine. There's a few people who who made blue wine, and that disappeared pretty quickly. Yes. Um, I I think that Piquet is on its way up, but I have a feeling it's going to go out as quick as it's going in. Um, and I think with Petnat too, I think I think we've hit peak Petnat, and we're going to see some people starting to pull back from it. Well, as I said, when I when I was in uh, when I was in Italy, they you know when they were talking about one of their wines, uh, they were very strong to tell me that it's not Petnet and it's not orange. It was just done in an amphora. That's all he, he said, because amphora somehow has become uh, synonymous, synonymous with, with orange uh, wines. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, it is not an orange wine. It is not an orange. And he must, must have said that as many times as uh, Brian Schmidt said um, optical sorter in the, uh, in the podcast we did with him and charged him for it. We're still looking for you, Brian. <laughs> no, well, I mean, uh, you know, you know, I, I really think that we are in a. I don't know. I, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's just like I, I really find it fascinating to see, like, like, like you said, there's there's people who are moving hard, hard back into like a hands off approach to winemaking in a dogmatic way. Um, I think the people who are going to end up making the best wine will have a healthy respect for technology without going all in one way. There's a way to embrace, embrace the best of both worlds, right? There is. So, any more questions, or do you want to talk about your favorite wines that you um, that you tasted? No, I, I think that was it. It's just like, figure, okay, the, the other one that, that sort of bothered me, that, that bothered me, and, and just like I was afraid to raise my hand again, was, um, you know, she said, could age in a cellar for a while. Now, when you're talking a while, that's 
relative, right? Because if we're talking about Ontario Chardonnay, I say get aged in a cellar for a while, you and I know exactly what that means. You know, we know that that means like three to five years, seven years is pushing it, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with like Ontario Reds, 10 years. For most producers, you're really pushed it hard. When you're talking about good producers in Brunello, and you're talking about Reserva, which I'm guessing is not the entry level tier for nope. Brunello, what does a while mean? How, how long are these supposed to age? And um, So you, you can easily age a Brunello, usually 10, 20 years, um, from really good producers. I've tasted really good 40-year-old Brunello. Um, wine, is, wine aging is always, is always that funny part. And this is, this is where the relative thing that comes into, comes into me. And this is why I'm excited to learn more, and I hope I get a chance to taste more Brunello. And if the people from the uh, Consorzione... Consorzio Vino Brunello di Montalcino, or the Italian Trade Agency, one of those two. If they're, if they're listening to this podcast, uh, you know, I would certainly appreciate an opportunity to taste more Brunello. And I'm not telling you to, to put me on a plane, but um, like I, I'm really fascinated to learn about this because I... I just purchased a house where I have room to age wines properly now. Um, but the thing I, I don't understand is where things are relative. Because, like, you know, I've been to Napa and Sonoma a couple of times now, and it's just like, oh, yeah, Cabernet Sauvignon aged for 15 to 20 years. But for me, the sweet spot is after five years. Because that's when the tannin has started to fall off. The fruit's still fresh and vibrant. And, you know, you still get all the best part of the juicy flavors. I don't want my... California Cabernet Sauvignon to taste like a catcher's mitt. So yeah, that's that's your thing, right? Like, and, and I and I and I really think if people pay attention to the the you know aging wine, they got to know what you know. I there's so many people who just say, oh, it's a, it'll just age. Now I do that because I have gone to one of those wine cellars that I am just you can literally forget about wine. Correct, but I'm doing it as a um, experiment. Let's be honest. I'm experimenting with cheap wine. I'm experimenting with other wines. I want to see how they're going to age so that I understand aging wines better. Uh, some wines I would like uh, really old. Some wines I like less old. But you have to know what you like in wine, just like you do. You know the sweet spot of California cap. For me, for me though. Correct. For me though. That's so, the other thing too is aging wine is, is subjective. Some people like the catcher's mitt. Some people like yeah. forest floor. Some people like it to be so smooth that it's it's almost non-existent to have any kind of flavor whatsoever. They just like smooth, right? Yeah. They don't care. They don't want tannins. They don't want much. They want some acidity, so it'll go with something they're eating. But they don't care about whatever else is in there. And I and I think it's important to learn as a consumer what you like in your wine. And I think I told you years ago, and I'll I'll say it again. The easiest way to do it, find out what you like in aged wine is to go out and buy a case of something Totally, totally. Yep, Seven, yep, yep. eight, nine dollars. It can be from Chile. It can be from Italy. Um, I, it can be from anywhere. And open one up because these wines are probably going to age quicker. Yep. So you open one up every six months. It's a six-year program, but I will bet you you don't go through all six years. I bet you you hit somewhere along the three-year mark and you go, but you, it is, you know what? It is important this to finish the like exercise. It. it is important to finish the Correct. six-year exercise. Um, do you know which wine I did it with? I'm waiting to hear. Henry of Pelham, Baco Noir. And that's unfortunate. But I made it about four years into the program where I just, it, it wasn't doing it for me anymore. Yeah, well, that's, it, see, it's a, that's, a, that's a different kind of, uh, that's a different kind of wine. And, and you're not, uh, 
I would I would recommend that somebody do it with a with a, with a Venezuelan grape. I would not recommend doing it with with a Baco. But well, Baco Baco does age nicely for two years. Yeah, it does. But I mean, two, two years lets the tannin the tannin fall. There's there's, there's the American oak influence there. Yep. There is a slight sweetness to that wine, yep. whether you whether you would want to admit to it or not. <laughs> but I I did it with a Gato Negro um, a cab from Chile. And, you know, my problem was, and I didn't realize it until I figured it out, it was under plastic cork. So by year three, everything was bad. Like, it was just horrible. It was just, and and it, it, it aged to the, I realized that I still have lots to learn about aging wine. But what I really learned was the plastic cork is the worst thing. Okay, we get it. You covered that before. Let's move on. Let's so, move on. Let, you know what? Let's, okay. So here's the bottom line. The tasting today was fun. It was a lot of fun. The, wine, the wines were clearly curated. Uh, I think you and I, were, we were both able to rank the wines. I stopped at number four. Like, like I, I ranked my top four because, to be blunt, if any one of these seven wines showed up at my house... I'd be very happy with it. I would be extremely happy. We're, we're talking about, I think, my lowest score of any of the wines today was a four. And... I mean, it, it was a very narrow band of, of quality. Like, I think I'm talking four plus or four and a half for some of the better ones. But it's one of those things where I have a hard time giving a crazy high score to a wine that I don't have a lot of experience tasting. So your your first, you want to go three, two, one, or you want to go one, two, three? Yeah, let's go three, two, one. Um, okay. My number three wine I think you actually ranked higher was the Fattoria de Barbie. I did rank that a little higher, um, but... Uh, let's see, my notes were cocoa and black licorice on the nose, and then it moves straight to, I, I thought this was a really fascinating taste, because when you when you taste a, a wine, you generally get like a spectrum of fruit, right? Like yeah. something that, that tastes like, like ripe cherry might all, all taste like sour cherry, or might also taste like dark cherry, but like very rarely do you get something where it's just like, oh, it's light on one end and heavy on the other end. This one, it was missing a lot of like that flavor profile from the middle, which I thought was fascinating. It was like someone had cooked with a few things. It was like... Cassis on one side, and like light, ripe sour cherry on the other side. And it's just like I don't even understand this. It was it was a bit of a closed up wine, but I I realize it's going to get much much better uh, with time. My number three ended up being a Col di Lamo, uh, Brunello di Montalcino Reserva, two thousand fifteen. Um, I've never even heard of this winery. The label was the most boring label I've ever seen in my life. Which wine was this? And it was wine number three. I actually liked that one the least. Ah, uh, see, I loved that. I loved there was a small producer, eight hectares, wild fermentation, big cherry nose, lush fruit. This, uh, I was, I, okay. I, I, I would have, I would have happily drank the whole bottle uh, if somebody had given me. And it also ends up twenty four months uh, in cask instead of thirty six months, so less time in oak. So, so the, the fruit so that got being the said, shine. I found, I found it choked off. Like it, it took a long time for it to start to reveal the note to, to reveal itself. But it did have interesting notes. Uh, like it had, it had a floral note that none of the other wines had, or they were much more restrained. It's like it had a, a Pinot esque violet nose to it. Although that was the only thing Pinot like about this wine. Well, so moving on to your number two. Uh, number two was the Talenti Brunello. Oh. Uh, what was it? Pian di, Con- di Conte. Sorry. Anyone Italian listening to this podcast, Pian di Conti. I make fun of Michael for his French pronunciations. I apologize. It's a beautiful language, and I'm ruining it. I can see why you like this wine. This, this, well, red licorice, red licorice, candied cherry, completely fruit-driven from nose to palate. 
40-year-old vines. Um, it, it had a little VA for my, for my taste, but it, it didn't get I in the way. I thought it was harness. I thought, I thought the VA, if anything, added a bit of texture to the back palate, and it was just like the flavor profile was so ripe and juicy, it was pie-filling, but um, it had incredible acids. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a juice bomb. It wasn't obnoxious. It was just like pushing right to the edge of being obnoxious. I, I see where you're going with that, but my, my number two was wine number seven, which was the Caparzo. That uh, was awesome. I, I really loved that cherry fruit, that licorice, the tobacco, the smoke, the balsamic. It was complex, and yet it was going places. And you could see that, again, another one that you could put in the cellar 10, 20 years. But I, I think the sweet spot on that wine is going to be 10 years. Well, here's the thing about the, the Carpazzo is, for me, I think that's one of those ones where I would buy it You've told me 10 years. I would crack it in five years, and it would be in a sweet spot where the tannin Correct. had fallen off, but it was very fruit-driven. But the note, you you chuckled a bit when I, because we were, we were chatting on Messenger about this. I said that it smelled like what would happen if you were eating a bag of cherry nibs and driving on the QEW while they're repaving it, while they're retarring it. Um, and I said, best way to have nibs, right? So... <laughs> But like, holy crap, like when that fruit hit the mid palate, it was like a friggin' explosion. It was just so good, full of juiciness with, with nice acid. And the, the tannin, the tannin was, the tannin was stubborn, but it was short. Like it wasn't big, big no. tannins. It was well integrated, but I think in like five years, that tannin's going to drop. Yeah, I think drop the, the, the really tar hard. note's going to integrate more with the cherry and it might turn it more into that spectrum of like blackberry dark cherry and move its way up. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I, I think I need to get some of that. So the number five, oh, you're sorry, your number, that was one, number one, one, that was my number one. That was your number one yes. was the, uh, was the Caparzo. Mine was that Fataria Barbie that you, uh, that you mentioned. Uh, okay. So that's the thing though is, is so I ranked that number three, you, you not, it was a very narrow spectrum. Yeah. It was a narrow, narrow spectrum. The, uh, the, you know, number two, we, we veered off of. But uh, that Barbie was just, it's just, it, it was mid-palate juicy to me. Lots of smoke, lots of balsamic. It had a Kirsch-like note to it. Um, some of that mocha, but a big bite on the tongue from the acid and the tannin. And uh, that was one of those wines that I thought, again, uh, that would, it'd be interesting to see in 30, 40 years. Like, I think it's still going to be, you know, really alive at that point. In five years? But, you know... You, where you would like go five, I would say it's got to be ten, and then you open it. And but here's the thing: really is, is, is I think you and I both know each other's taste in wine enough to know that it's not in, it's not an, an argument. We're both right in where we open it. It's just we both know where we like our wines to be. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind older wines. I know you're not as big a fan of the uh, baseball gloves. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what you would think about baseball. Huh? I don't even know what you think about baseball. I I I I find it boring. Same. There you go. So that's why I, mean, you don't I don't like mind it when the team's man. good and like, you know, you get that like ten minutes of excitement in the three hour game. And a shout out to the Blue Jays who put together a hell of a season but just missed the playoffs. Like just. Man, I was listening to uh, I was listening to the Rush in my car today on on News Talk, and they were talking about like the the prior ranking priorities of who gets rapid testing and. The host Jay was going down the list of like Toronto sports teams by important, and went Maple Leafs, then Blue Jays, and skipped down to the Rock, which by the way aren't even based in Toronto any anymore. They're now based in Hamilton, oh. and completely overlooked the Argos. So, 
There you go. You know what? I don't think the Argos are that important to Toronto anymore. I hate to say it. I, I, you know what? I agree with that. Man, I'm, I'm happy to live in a football city again. Yeah, Hamilton really is is a. You've got to go see a, a Tie Cats game. I've already got tickets. To the, I'm assuming it's the one that was against Saskatchewan. It is again. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to go when I don't. When Captain. Well, I'm looking when at. When Captain Chardonnay runs up the, the field in his green and white. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Don't and worry. and I'm, I'm looking at your tracksuit that you're wearing today. It's I know. I fit in with the neighbor because I wear a lot of black and gold. Black and gold. So there you go. All right, let's wrap it up so we can get you home for dinner. All right, go ahead. Um, as always, support for the podcast is much appreciated. Patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. We do have one tasting that we will be planning shortly with our patron, Ken Little. So thank you very much for taking us up on that. Um, we are in the process of actively looking for sponsors. So if you want to make sure that this great independent bit of wine journalism is continuing, we would love to talk to you. Um, and I am bringing it back from the dead. I've been really crappy at updating it, but underwinereview.ca still lives. Uh, I will be posting what I drank on my summer vacation because just frankly, moving was way more work than I thought it was going to be. So I apologize for not keeping and, this and up to date. And let's be honest, 2021 has been just one long summer vacation. Man, I don't know where the year went. It has both been the, the shortest and longest year ever where it's like, well, it wasn't a January yesterday. And then I think about all the stuff that happened between. It was just like, oh, crap. It still feels like January was yesterday. Yeah. You are. You are Andre Wine Review from AndreWineReview.ca. I already said that. Not really. You said you were, you were reviving AndreWineReview.ca. Oh, and you but are. But that's who still you are. And you are. <laughs> I'm just being ornery. That's who I am. I'm being ornery because I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Find me on social media as The Grape Guy or MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Check out his YouTube series where he screams at a camera for three minutes. It's, I, I know I know, I say it and it sounds like I'm completely making fun of him, but the videos are a lot of fun, which is why I bring attention to them. So uh, I, may be, I may be trying something new there, Andre. Let's see if I get to it. But You're not going to scream at the cameras loudly? I don't know. Just hold on. It might, something interesting might be coming. I can't wait. We got to talk about it on the podcast. Andre, thanks for inviting me into your uh, house. The, the Hamilton, Hamilton Studio, studio is uh, looking like a place to drink, and it's closer to home. Say goodnight, Michael. Good night, Michael. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.